Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And hello out there in Radio Land. We're going a little old school. This is a very much remote broadcast of the best political podcast that you've never downloaded. This is Backroom Politics. I am broadcasting from my dining living area here at my palatial apartment in Arlington County, Virginia. Uh, it is in the, we are in the middle of the greatest economic stoppage, the greatest public health crisis that we have seen in the better part of a hundred years. Uh, everybody in America, everyone around the world is going through lives that are constantly changing. Uh, this is a disease that is really taken a lot of the steam out of what was a robust economy. It, it, so many things are happening, but let's start with the statistics. Uh, I am your, First of all, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hopefully, we will get some of the crew. I believe Admiral Dan, or Admiral Ken Caradine will be joining us. Dan Lipner and Alan Moore should be joining us here shortly as well. Uh, but let's start with the beginning. Number one, uh, here are the facts. As of the date of this recording, for those of you that are listening to us live, uh, it is 3 o'clock on a Thursday here in the East Coast. Uh, as of this moment, worldwide, uh, confirmed 1,447,412 cases of COVID-19 or coronavirus. 344,467 are designated as recovered, with 91,783 deaths worldwide from this. The United States is dealing with numbers. The United States has quickly become the hotspot. And joining us now on the air, uh, again, we're kind of playing this by by ear, we're going old school on Blog Talk Radio. We're going old school, uh, different time periods and everything. But joining us, he is the former, uh, he's the former Undersecretary for Economic Development for the Department of Commerce. He's the one we know as Alan. Alan, how are you? Hey, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Good. I'm always amused at how at how <laughs> how my job position changes over time. Yeah, you know what? I, I, we're a little rusty here. It's been uh, four weeks since we've been on the air, and I gotta get I gotta get used to introducing everybody again. But Alan, thanks for joining us. Uh, as you heard leading up to it, we we were kind of going over the numbers uh, for everybody. You know, the latest here in the United States: four hundred fifty-four thousand two hundred twenty-two confirmed cases, with twenty-four thousand seven hundred twenty-three recovered officially. And then the number fifteen thousand nine hundred and twenty-three deaths as of uh, as of this date. Uh, it is again a situation which is fluid. It is constantly a changing dynamic. What was the epicenter, or is still is the epicenter of the coronavirus response? The attention, uh, the direction of resources is the tri-state area of. 
Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. That dynamic is slowly changing the focus now going towards cities like Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans, South Florida has been talked about as a new possible hotspot. The other hotspot that everybody's got their focus on is the one where we're broadcasting from, and that is the National Capital Region here in Washington, D.C. Many experts in uh, the CDC and the NIH, the Centers for Disease Control, and the National Institutes for Health are saying that the next hotspot, in fact, could be, along with the cities we just mentioned, the national capital region, including Washington, D.C. Uh, it has been, uh, it has drawn criticism. It has drawn praise. The response from the federal government, the response of Americans, the response of those in essential career paths, uh, there's a lot of heroics, a lot of heroism being displayed right now, but we'll get into that as we get further into the special edition of Backroom Politics. But Alan, let, let's start from the beginning. Let's start first with China. Uh, we, we know that China pretty much shut down uh, the largest industrial city that they had, which is Wuhan, and basically took that city, put it in total lockdown, with the anticipation of not only containing the virus, but, uh, but also being able to control any sort of spread, any sort of possible contagion coming out of there. Uh, but now it looks like that wasn't effective. Are, are, we, are we putting too much blame on China as far as the reason why we're going through this? Does China bear some responsibility in this? Well, China's biggest uh, failure was in uh, not uh, being fully transparent as early as they could have and should have been. Um, when when we have a potential new uh, infection, a new virus, uh, which they knew about in December, um, the the international agreements, the international protocols, the smart thing to do is to let everybody else know. Let the World Health Organization know, let the U.S. know, let Europeans know, let other Asian countries know, so that everybody can gather together and figure out what's going on. The Chinese have a long history of, of uh, being overly proud and therefore overly uh, cautious and hidden in sharing information. And we could have gotten a better start. The world could have gotten a better start on this if they had in the very beginning and said, uh-oh, we've got a problem. Um, it took a while before the World Health Organization was invited in. The CDC asked repeatedly to get in and was denied, the thought being, no, no, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. So if, if China's to blame, whether there's, it was this slowness to acknowledge uh, what was going on. Secondly, there are many, many questions about how how effective what they have done has actually been, and and once once your credibility well, is subject is well, subject to challenge, then every time right. you give updated reports on how beautifully everything is going, well, there's a lot of skepticism. We're going to come back to Alan. We're going to come back to that. Uh, joining us also right now, he retired one star admiral from your United States Navy. 
uh, joining us from South Florida. He is the one we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Hey, Admiral Ken, how are you? Admiral Ken. Did we lose Admiral Ken? <laughs> uh, yes, we did. Okay. There's that. We're going to put him on hold, and hopefully he'll come back and join us. Uh, so, Alan, talking about the Chinese here, as far as, you know, we're seeing a lot of world leaders talking about the idea that had, as you pointed out, the Chinese been more transparent. Had they been more proactive, uh, I've even talked to some of the intelligence community that say even now, the numbers that they are portraying are either uh, grossly incorrect or they are uh, they're either grossly incorrect, grossly underreported, or just flat out deceptive. Is is that is, is that a legitimate concern that we have to look at sure. as far as as far as leading up to the U.S. response? I mean, absolutely. I started to go there before. You know, they got off to a bad start by not being forthcoming, and now they're showing borderline miraculous results. Um, they have their autocratic society. They have the ability to order people to do things, and they've got an, uh, an extensive network of, 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 of military, of, of, of police state-type activity where they can order people to do stuff, and every neighborhood's got a spy. Um, so you can crack down in a big way, and every now and then that can help. It can be helpful to you when you're trying to get people to do certain kinds of things that they wouldn't otherwise want to do. Right. Um, but the but the results they're describing, you know, a week or more, week now or more of no new infections in Wuhan, um, and very few uh, deaths around the rest of China, it defies logic that things would be that good now. I don't know. Maybe they are. But the problem right. is, because they have not been forthcoming in the past, when report really fabulous results, which give the rest of us a lot of encouragement that, gee, if that's their experience, maybe we can follow that experience. But all the pros are saying, careful, careful, careful. Um, right. They weren't forthcoming before. They're not always forthcoming. Just be skeptical. Right. Try to verify, right. if you will, if you want, if you want to trust. Um and and uh, so so well we let me let me go to let me go to Dan dialogue. right let me go to Dan uh, or uh, Admiral Ken Admiral Ken is joining us back like uh, Admiral Ken first of all how are you how's your family Admiral Ken I'm sorry Justin repeat the question I said how are uh, you and how's your family uh, everybody's pretty well. Uh, we're, we're fine. Thank you. Uh, we're, um, we're, uh, we're getting through it as best we possibly can. I'm, uh, we're doing a lot of working out, uh, eating very well, uh, right. a lot of cigars. Yeah. Good. So we're doing there well. you go. You. Hey, hey, uh, Admiral Ken, let me follow on to the questioning I was giving Alan is the, the, the idea that China, uh, has a little bit to bear the brunt of blame, if you will, for what might be happening here in the United States. Is that accurate? Um, I, I think that's an accurate perception. I don't know if that's an accurate fact. Uh, Why? As late as this morning, as late as this morning, MSNBC 
was reporting that some of the genome research they'd done on some of the virus uh, um, infections out of New York were European-based, and that uh, given the the high degree of interaction, expected interaction between places uh, uh, like California and, and Washington State with China, they would have expected a much higher uh, level of prevalence. But uh, apparently, um, the the half-hearted um, travel ban that went into place uh, for China uh, and less so for Europe uh, came back to bite us. And, uh, but uh, I think that's an accurate perception. Um, although, saying that, the Chinese have not been very forthcoming, at least they weren't in the beginning, with information about this virus. Uh, I think it has given the administration um, a, uh, a, a possible out <clears throat> with regard to preparedness because of that lack of uh, transparency. But uh, again, though, the, the president's wanting to call this early on as the Chinese virus, uh, I think, is uh, probably not uh, not accurate uh, completely. Right. Dan Lipner joining us from Maryland. Dan, how are you? Dan? I think we lost Dan. That's all right. Um, so, so just Alan Moore, go ahead. Yeah. Alan yeah, so, Moore, go ahead. So what, there seems to be a lot of consensus among the scientists that this thing started in China, that it started likely from a bat, something called a horseshoe bat, that the bat carry apparently like over a million different viruses. Think about that, folks. Uh, usually, and, and bats, for some reason, just don't react to them. They carry them around. Every now and then, one gets to another animal, maybe a pig, maybe a sick cat. Um, and then it's usually that other, that pig or that civet cat that gets uh, gets carved up and eaten, maybe in the butchering cross uh, uh, migration occurs between the mammal um, and, and human. And then right. it goes every now and then it mutates. What, what Ken was talking about in terms of Europe is that, that, that although – Everything presumably started in China, and some mem- members of the world, by the way, around experts are saying China needs to shut down these markets where oddball um, uh, animals are slaughtered for consumption let or me, for medical purposes. Different let let issue, me jump in but, on that, Alan. But it's but let me jump. at the heart of where this stuff starts, Okay. Right, but but let me jump. Let me jump to the. I want to speak to the European piece that Ken talked about. Well, well, I mean that's. Let me let me keep let me keep going on and talking uh, and introduce Dan Lipner again. Dan, are you on? I am indeed on. Dan, there you are. Okay. Hey, Dan Lipner, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. the situation where, you know, and, and Alan was talking to this a little bit, uh, reports coming out of uh, at least an article in the New York Times is reporting that several studies are confirming that, in fact, that the coronavirus that we are dealing with right now, in fact, did not necessarily come directly by the Chinese route, but more uh, more logically and and more uh, evidence is showing that this came by way of Europe, Europe, not by uh, not by China. 
that being the that being said, is is this is this proving the fact that the uh, you know, the, the pressure on China, the fact that the White House, which we'll get into in a little bit, in the federal response, but a lot of the pressure on the World Health Organization saying that they are pro-China in this situation. Uh, a lot of people are just being uh, knee-jerk reactionary to something that they just don't know. Dan? <laughs> muted me again. Dan, yeah, there you go. Okay. I, 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 got uh, it. It works best if you don't mute me. So the, the answer is yes. The Chinese do share a fair amount of blame. Uh, the WHO uh, business that the Trump administration is trying to push right now um, is a bit misstated because apparently the Trump administration doesn't understand how calendars work. Um, there were warnings from the World Health Organization about this virus, and in spite of the fact that, yes, the Chinese uh, do have some blame for both the cover-up and the, where this, how this virus spawned, um, that's sort of a conversation for a point, some point in the future as far as the security of world, well, world food, food markets, because as we've seen, as we are seeing present tense, a virus like this does not stay contained uh, for long, and the, the, that portion of the conversation needs to be had, but not right now. However, the business about blaming the, the World Health Organization, and worse yet, trying to withhold funds from the World Health Organization, there's, there's evidence on the field that the World Health Organization not only warned the rest of the world, but warned us. And in spite of the fact that they still, even taking China's uh, misstated words to be generous on their control of, of this pandemic, there were still there were other warnings out there. Not to mention the fact that we, because of our lack of faith in, in organizations like the WHO, we used to have our own pandemic specialists based in China to try and catch this stuff early. Um, and that's all it's, it, it well, definitely trying not to be political about this. The administration that put this stuff in place, it actually goes back to George W. Bush for an attempt to start building up a world infrastructure. The Obama administration explicitly put people in China to try and monitor this stuff. And the Trump administration removed those positions. It's, those are simply the facts on the field, I, and I'm not quite certain how you get around them. Well, so, hey, hey Adam, come on, Justin, Adam, let, me, let, let me explain about the Europe piece. Okay. And also to, I'm, I'm enjoying, Dan is drawing inferences, um, but not wanting to be political, which is, which is pretty amusing. But I wanted to speak to the New York Times story, the point that Ken made about how the New York-based virus appears to have come from Europe. That's true. It started in China. It went to Europe, and it mutates. And the viruses, and this is really interesting, they make these subtle little mutations. So the experts can track stuff back to see where right. it came from and where it came through. The mutations, thank God, for, for, for viruses like this, don't become an automatic new impossible challenge to treat 
or prevent, but they provide a roadmap to where stuff came from. So it started in some kind of crazy food market in Wuhan. We're pretty sure about that from bats to probably civet cats and and then a human. Um, All right, but Alan, but, Alan, let me go back. But, but let me go back to one point. Let me go back to one point, Alan, that you that you made though in talking about the European and the, the track from China to Europe to New York and here, and you talk about mutation. The the, the CDC has already said that there is strong evidence that there is what they're calling the Italian strain which is kind of what took Italy and its healthcare system, this mutation that you had mentioned in, 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 your, uh, in your opening, that now has taken a whole new turn, and they're dealing with what is the Italian strain, but is largely taking on the similar strains in, in Europe. We're now hearing for the first time that there is the possible New York strain. Because what I guess what I'm getting at, Alan, is in even the CDC, even the NIH is saying that because we don't know what COVID-19, we know what the baseline may be, but in, in talking to CDC and NIH, someone is saying we're just chasing a ball. We don't know exactly what we're dealing here. And nobody in the no, global. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. One at a time, one at a time, one at a time. Alan Moore. I think I think I think you're mischaracterizing what what these guys are saying. They can track the path because of these slight mutations. But right. basically, it's the same virus with these little, these slights called these, these genetic differences that, that don't affect, at this point, from all experts that, that I have read about or, or heard from, doesn't affect what, what we're trying to do in terms of a vaccine, what we're doing in terms of a treatment. It's really helpful to find how to track it and where it came from. But the Italian problem and the Spanish problem and the New York problem and the South Korea problem and the Wuhan problem are basically the same problem where we can test the same kinds of treatments to see if we get any results. We can seek half a dozen or more different possible vaccines that would deal with all of those. So right. I just want to say that's different problems. one problem. What's that? Go ahead, Dan. Dan, yeah. let me know you. No, no. So, so Alan's absolutely right, and that is the the key thing. Um, but it's still, there has been anecdotal, and let's be clear: difference between anecdotal and actual data are two very different things. There has been some anecdotal evidence that people have been getting the that some people, a very small number, have gotten the virus more than once. Now, because it's anecdotal and not actual data. Therefore, what Alan's talking about, those very slight genetic variants between uh, one version of COVID-19 and another version of COVID-19, thus far as we understand it, probably will not affect either people's uh, immunity that they've, that they've the earned immunity from having the virus and getting over it or a potential vaccine. That's what we understand at the moment. However, 
the big question is, and this of many things that we don't know, we don't know if this is if this virus has its own little reset button that allows it to mutate faster. That could make it a a different a, a for lack of a better phrase a COVID nineteen A a COVID nineteen B that would require different vaccines. We aren't there yet, but that's one of the things that I'm quite certain but, people smart enough are paying attention to. Well, but so here's here's the thing here's the thing about it, and 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 this is this is something that the experts are saying is you look at Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, who is uh, very practical, very cautious, spent his entire life dealing with this stuff. But Dr. Fauci is even saying that, you know, we are, we are still dealing with largely we're playing catch up is basically what he's saying is we are playing catch up on something that came on our radar screens so rapidly and the spread of this came on such a rapid form that before we could even stand up and come up with legitimate testing protocols, we saw hundreds of thousands of people infected with coronavirus. The, the issue is, and, and I guess I'll ask, I'll ask the table this, and I'll start with you, Admiral Ken, is, you know, as good as our epidemiologists are, and, 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 and this is a global uh, qualification, we have epidemiologists worldwide that study this exact issue. Were, were we caught as a global community and as a nation in the United States, were we caught off guard or is this something that was possibly preventable or foreseeable i think i think it you know not not meaning to you know belittle the importance of 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 this pandemic it kind of feels like teenage sex everybody's talking about it but nobody's doing anything about it and you know so dan's right that the uh the 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 positioning of a global organization or process to deal with this started with uh with George, w., with George W. Bush, um, the Obama administration had a uh, had an office dealing with pandemics um, in the in the office of the National Security Advisor that was subsequently disbanded. Matter of fact, they even put together a war plan. Uh, I found out late today that back in 2019, uh, the Naval War College did a um, uh, a war game on on, on just this very subject. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of planning. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, information and misinformation put out there. But at the end of the day, um, I think globally, I think globally and nationally, uh, we, we were caught off guard and we weren't ready for it. And you see it in almost every, in almost in, in uh, almost every, um, um, every incident that, that, that's discussed with any level of detail. Now, uh, you know, interestingly, you know, a few places, uh, seem to have their act together. Uh, Australia, Korea, uh, China, uh, who who all have interesting cultures that are more uh, amenable to government oversight and intrusion than than ours is. Um, and I think that even within the U.S., you're seeing uh, something of a political divide as to how people are reacting to to this and what they're doing. 
uh, almost at the uh, the almost at the level of you know which county went with Trump and which county did not. So I think, but overall, to answer your question directly, I think overall the the, the world, including the United States, was caught off guard on this by this. Dan, Dan Lipner, was was this preventable? Well, so it, it's important to yeah, we have to bifurcate this. So there there's the problems that we should have been dealing with for two years, five years, ten years ago for actually having a a global response and global protocols in place. Uh, th- that shame is on everybody's hands. There There is nobody who is without guilt on that. Uh, the United States, Europe, Asia, everyone everyone's been problematic there. Then there's the question of the, once we knew this was a problem, how did we start responding or fail to start responding? And there are places that did aggressively t- take actions, and South Korea is one of those in, in, uh, in impressive, sh- impressive shows. I actually had an exchange with John Allen on, on this very thing and mentioned that, yeah, while the, Ch- the Chinese and Koreans did a great job, they also have uh, central governments with incredible amounts of power, um, and they were able to do things that in the United States – um, not that they would be impossible, but are significantly more difficult. Um, that said, there's also more than a bit of evidence that we were we were late once the warnings were clear to start taking some basic actions. And in some cases, we actually created more of a panic with the actions that we took. Um, there was the famous picture of people standing in lines at the airport, very, very crowded lines at the airport once how the travel bans were instituted with no, how do you do this without getting people sick along the way? Um, Those are the preventable problems. Once we knew we were dealing with this, the experts and people who know how to mitigate, and that's the magic word, to mitigate the spread of a disease like this, those voices did not have, have the... The, uh, the the magnification they needed early on, and there's there was happy talk out there, um, and what what Ken was talking about to some extent this is uh, there's actually a, literally a Fox News divide on this. There's now actual data on this that people who are receiving Fox News and taking that as their first take for information on this disease are far less likely to be taking it seriously. And that's just dangerous for everyone. When I have to go out and forage for groceries and I'm decked out with gloves and a and mask and the whole deal, and somebody next to me is not doing any of that, well, I'm doing my best not to catch this disease or heaven forbid, if I have it, not share it. Those people that aren't doing it, it's, it doesn't just magically stay with those who are being uh, irresponsible. They right. still share right. it regardless, and that's part of the danger. Ah. Right. Alan Moore, you agree? Alan Moore? I think we lost Alan Moore there for a second. Uh, Admiral Ken, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the federal response that we've got going right now, uh, because it is uh, it has drawn the ire of both Republicans and Democrats. It's also drawn support from some Democrats and, and some Republicans as well. But 
Uh, let's start off where Dan left off with this, the actions early on. Uh, we heard a lot about coronavirus in China and then as it kind of creeped into, let's say, South Korea and in the Far East. Uh, we're now hearing reports that everybody from the WHO to uh, economic advisor Peter Navarro to the intelligence community were talking about this issue as early as late January into February. Is, is, the, is the federal response to this indicative or not indicative of a uh, an administration that thinks it's smarter than everybody else. Let me put it that way. Oh, wow. Um, so let me try and answer it this way. Um, I think that the fact that we have watched this administration um, go after the levels of the levers of government for the better part of the last three years uh, you can't trust them. There's a deep state, yada, yada, yada. I think, you know, lends some credibility to the argument that um, that I think is the basis of the, uh, the, the question that you just asked. Um, I will say that, um, you know, we have we, the, the, this group of people uh, on this on this on this on this meeting uh, have lived through some some interesting times. Um, the, the economic meltdown, 9-11, uh, um, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Hurricane Sandy, and um, not, not to mention um, uh, the, the hurricane that hit, hit uh, New Orleans. At the basis of all those recoveries, at the basis of all of those actions uh, and responses, was significant leadership by the federal government. Um, these are national problems. When, when, they, when they go across state lines, they, 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 they're no longer state issues. They are, they are national issues. And consequently, I think that there should be a national level of leadership coordinating, uh, directing, um, and, and, and showing, showing the way ahead. Um, you know, Justin, you and I spoke privately the other day, and I made the comment that I thought Governor, Governor, Governor Cuomo is, is basically doing a good job. I would like to see that level of leadership on the national stage for all of the states that, that are that are directly impacted by this, and we're not seeing it right now. Right. Uh, I, I think I think that the fact that you know states are being allowed to, um, or FEMA, I'm sorry, is being allowed to impact state orders for uh, personal protective equipment, pitting one state against the other. Um, you know, com com committing, you know, in some regards, what I would call highway robbery when, when, when one hospital, one state's expecting equipment to show up and find out that they've been, uh, they've been, they've been keel hauled by, by yet another. This is not indicative of the kind of leadership that we saw from the Republican Party uh, under George, H George W. Bush. Uh, this is not what we've seen uh, with regard to leadership by the Democratic Party, even right. when in the darkest days of Obama's presidency, when we're in Iraq and Afghanistan, there should be there should be some stepping up being done by our, our national leaders. Uh, Alan Moore, Alan Moore, let me let me go to you on this because I want to ask you. There's there's a really either fine line or a very blurred line 
when it comes to the role of FEMA, the role of the federal government, and the role of the state governments and local governments. In this situation, we've seen uh, some spectacular response from a lot of the state governors. Uh, Admiral Ken mentioned Governor Cuomo of New York. Uh, we mentioned Governor Gavin Newsom of, uh, of California. Larry Hogan uh, has been a name that's been popping up here in Maryland. Uh, but at the same time, we've also seen uh, a lot of criticism being levied at the federal government for its either lack of coordination, lack of response. And to elaborate a little bit more, Jared Kushner, the special advisor to the president and president's son-in-law, made a statement that kind of drew a lot of ire as to what exactly the role of FEMA is. We know what the role of FEMA is. And it is to support the national response efforts to back up the states to deal with a, either a natural disaster or a crisis mitigation response and recovery of some sort. But are we being too hard on the FEMA and federal response, or are some of the governors right saying that this is the role of the federal government, it's a national emergency, you guys need to step up or else what's the use? Alan Moore? You may have muted him. You kept on accidentally muting me. No, I'm, I'm not muting him, Dan. Trust me. I'm looking at everybody on a live red microphone. Uh, Dan, since you chimed in, I'll go to you. I mean, Jared Kushner's, statement that it's our supplies, not the state's supplies, was an incomprehensible statement on a bunch of fronts. Uh, who, is the, the, who is the us that represents our supplies, not the state's supplies? Um, the, the, all the anecdotes that have come out about the, the just the, the presence of leadership. So leadership has a bunch of different aspects to it. It's, it's both the action on the ground, but it's also just the presence. And I'm sure Admiral Ken uh, can, can speak to this better than any of us can. There is a command demeanor to show off that you are actually in charge, that this is in control, and that is buttressed by actually showing that evidence on the field of battle that, all right, not only is this guy said he knows what he's doing, but he's actually putting it, putting up and doing it. That inspires confidence. That inspires confidence in the president. That inspires confidence in the national response. That, in, that inspires confidence but, but in wait, 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 wait. the people that the president blesses with that, with, with that response. Dan, let me, but, hold on. Dan, let me, yeah. let me jump in with this question, though. The question still goes back to is where is the burden on this? Is the burden, in fact, with the states, with the support of the federal government, or is the federal government supposed to be the pointy end of the spear on this? The federal government is absolutely, the, at the end of the day, where the buck stops. Um, that is why we have a federal government. That is why the original Union of the United States disbanded the Articles of Confederation and went with the U.S. Constitution. 
that we are we are not a loose confederacy of states. We are one United States, and it's part of the reason why we have a FEMA, why we have a military, why we have a federal response. The states absolutely have a role to play. However, they are not islands in themselves. They all interact together to respond to something like this. And the idea that we had states bidding against each other for some of these much-needed supplies, we had states begging for the national stockpile to be releasing some, some of the supplies that we had on hand, even if they were – even if those supplies were outdated. The federal government actually loosened its requirements for some of the things that may have, have, have expired on the shelves in order for medical professionals to actually have something that might right. keep them from those medical professionals from getting sick. So that is why we have things like this. So when we have something that is a national-level crisis, that everyone is playing on the same team. So, right. And it's but Alan, partisan. There are Republican governors. Like Mike DeWine is, uh, but Ohio Alan, is consistently being heralded as doing a great job getting information out there and handling his state. This is not a partisan issue. Right, but Alan Moore, let me go back to you. The question is, you know, we, we, you know, as somebody who's been directly involved with FEMA uh, in talking with them during this crisis, as well as hurricane responses going back twenty years, there's always been a mis- there's always been a misconception as far as the role of what FEMA does as an organization. Uh, is that misconception? Because the reality is. FEMA is, by charter, in fact, a support mechanism for the state governments to run their emergency management, emergency response in their jurisdictions. Uh, is, is that misconception being overhyped right now, or is, it, is this a real time-tested challenge to say the federal government has just completely given out the wrong idea of what this is, they are, in fact, the the pointy end of the spear. Alan Moore. No, Alan Moore. Okay. Uh, Admiral Ken, I'll go to you on that one. Do you agree with that assessment, or is is this, in fact, just a fog of war situation where we're dealing with a, a local and state organizations that truly are trying to get their arms wrapped around something that is completely unprecedented and a federal government trying to find its way into what its role due to conflicting messaging coming from the top. So, so again, let's not, let's not, um, let's not use FEMA as the, um, the whipping boy or uh, for not uh, for, for what I consider a, a problematic uh, federal response. So FEMA, CDC, FDA, um, the, the White House, uh, the Corona Task Force, these are all mechanisms that have been put in place, um, one more recently than the others, to deal with emergency situations, uh, situations that go beyond simple state borders that have a regional or almost an even national impact. This is the reason we have a federal government. This is the reason why we pay the taxes that we do, that we hire the experts that we hire, 
and we basically dust them off every hundred years or so and expect them to, you know, put, you know, foot the butt to get things done. And I think that um, the, the belief or the statement that this is a state problem and the state should be figuring this out uh, on their own without uh, any kind of support or not, let me rephrase that, the state should be figuring this on their own and only getting support from the federal government when necessary is just a dumb thing to say and think. It's not right. Yeah, but, it's not the way it yeah, but Dan, Dan Littner, I mean, are the are the governor are the governors stepping up because they have to, and we're starting to see them. I mean, we've even talked about, uh, or we haven't talked about, but the, even there are governors that are talking about coming up with their own coalition to get together and distribute equally and evenly and based on need a lot of these medical supplies taking the hand, taking it out of the hands of the federal government. Uh, is, is, is that, is that the right answer? I mean, taking it out of the hands of the federal government is misstating it. It's more in the lines of the governors taking actions in spite of the failures of the federal government. So uh, states like Washington state, Oregon, and California, places that, pretty dramatic actions. Washington State had a, was pretty hard hit early on as a per capita number, took some dramatic actions, and again, worth noting, Governor Enzi was attacked by President Trump inexplicably during this crisis. But those states actually have been taking upon themselves to share resources with the more, more harder hit states at the moment. Again, this is an issue of timing now of present tense of who is in need and who will be in need. So lending their supplies to states like New York State and New Jersey, both of which are getting hit fairly hard at the moment by right. COVID-19. And, but Dan, but Dan and let me just Governor jump in. Cuomo let me has just done jump. a phenomenal job also saying once the crisis passes New York State, he will return the favor to any state in the union that needs it. All of that said, it should absolutely yeah. be coordinated by the White House at the federal level because they have all of they should have all of the numbers and know what all of the resources are at this point. So let me let me just jump in. Let me just jump in real quick and, and just say one of the glaring things that has been very evident that at least in what is being shown to the public and what we've been hearing inside government is number one, uh, the, the traditionally in a national crisis in a national emergency response like this, nobody has, at least from what has been indicated out of the administration, utilized the national contingency plan, the national incident management system. There is no unified command that we can see coming out of the white house or out of the federal government. It is it is, very uh, fragmented and fractured different task forces that are overlapping, counterdicting, and in some instances hindering the actual, the actual response to this, whether it's the coordination of equipment, supplies, medical staffing, etc. That's number one. Number two, Dan, to go to your point, I just want to point this out, is, you know, when you look at uh, the acquisition of of supplies. 
the federal government said, look, we'll take care of all this and we're going to distribute it out nationally. We'll use our national stockpile, which has now been decimated. But the issue now is that a lot of the states don't have the firm confidence that the federal government is able to get them what they need, when they need it, and having to do it apolitically, that Jay Inslee in Washington State, that Gavin Newsom in California, that even uh, Governor Cuomo, Governor Murphy in New Jersey, they've all started saying, you know what, the heck with you, we'll start buying it directly, and we'll figure it out as governors, and we'll separate, you know, you guys come to us when you get your act together. That being the case, let's be clear. Let, let, let's clear. Let's clear. Let's be clear. What problem that creates going forward? When states like Texas, when states like Florida, dear God, um, states like Alabama, whose governor has been remarkably slow, states like South Carolina as well have, have been remarkably slow in their own responses. When states like Washington State, California, New York State, Illinois, or Ohio are now stockpiling their own resources. Because as people are trying to get production up to speed to get things out there, states that will possibly not be in need in the future will be hindering the ability for states that will be in need next week in the next few weeks to get those resources. A national response could prevent that entirely. That's why this is so dangerous. But Alan Moore is – is which is more dangerous? Is it the fragmented coordination that's being portrayed by the federal government in this, or is it the states kind of ganging up on the federal government saying, no, it's me, me, me first, and the federal government legitimately has to look at all 50 states and the territories to, to gauge what their needs actually and should be. So can you hear me now? Yeah, we can, Alan. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was hearing you guys all the time and screaming into my phone. So sorry. Uh, don't know what happened. That's okay. I, I had to keep that going That's back all right. and coming back in. Go, so go, go ahead with your answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's ample, there's ample blame here to go around, and it starts with some, some stuff that you guys talked about, about over the last 20 years in particular, what we have and have not done. Um, I think a, a little history is useful after after 9/11, um, and then the anthrax attack on the Capitol. Um, there was a massive effort to to think about our public health infrastructure um, and how outdated and how outmoded it is. And in the words of my my then boss Bill Frist, we're not unprepared, but we're underprepared, and we began investing massive amounts of money to beef up a public health infrastructure that had basically just gone to seed. And public health infrastructure is local and state primarily with, as you were saying, Justin, um, this national backup from FEMA, which is usually dealing with natural disasters. Uh, it's got a lot of equipment and warehouses, a lot more now than it used to. Um, but it was not designed for pandemic response or epidemic response, epidemic being in our country and pandemic meaning, well, multiple countries across the world. And 
there have been lots of different warnings and studies and war games and so on that, that have been done over the last 15 years, but nobody ever jumped on that and said, wow, we need to invest billions of dollars in, uh, in, in warehousing even more stuff. And I'll remind everybody that, that a bunch of N95 masks, the famous masks that were distributed out of federal warehouses were 15 years old and way past expiration. I mean, this is part of the problem. How much right. money do you invest in preparing for the, the unlikely but devastating, if it comes, a kind of event? Um, now right. we can say we certainly didn't invest enough, but at the time, it's always a fight. Where do the resources come from? And do you worry right. about today's emergency or tom- tomorrow's possible uh, situation? We've got this fragmented system where with public health things, it happens in the local level, county, city, and then hospitals themselves are all geared up with, yep. with, their, but, with their own stuff. And then, this, then it goes to the state level that has uh, different states, different capabilities of stuff that's stored nationally. And I think you made this point much better than Jared Kushner tried to and, 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 and totally failed and sounded like an idiot. But the point he was trying to make, I'm convinced, is the one you were making, that FEMA is not set up to be the first place you go. It's supposed to backstop. But we were so we we went <laughs> we were we were so unprepared nationally. Some places a lot worse off than others, and it remains to be seen how bad things are uh, as as more states come uh, come into the spotlight here. Um, and then, and then a complete lack of leadership from 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 the top. I mean, this is a place where where a, a disciplined president with a carefully calibrated message could have been enormously helpful to say, "Look, folks, we're in this together. There is a lot that 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 we that that we might have done." Five and ten years ago, we didn't do it. We might thought we might have done over the last three years. We didn't do it. All right. So here we are. And All right, but but Alan, Alan, hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought for a second. Let me hold that thought for a second because you bring a really valid point that I want uh, to touch on is, you know, has the problem been the actual response or the messaging of the response? Where it is well, it's current state today. You know, we 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 weren't ready, so the response was going to be problematic. We fumbled. We lost about three weeks in the beginning, with with a good test that was not put together properly and it didn't work right. And three weeks translates today, frankly, into lost lives. Okay, so there's no getting around the fumbling on the test piece. Um, that was in the CDC's bailiwick. Um, it, it, stuff like that happens, and this is a reminder of what kinds of stakes are involved in something like this. Um, and so that was that we, we, we got off to that slow start, and then there was a huge messaging problem. We had signals from, our, <laughs> from the commander-in-chief that we had this thing. We were in control. It wasn't going to be that bad. And that allowed the American people, governors, local officials to think, oh, okay, it's going to be bad some places. We're good. We're good. We're cool. 
And it should have been all hands on deck from the very beginning. And I lay that on the president. Um, and and so we 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 weren't ready. We, we weren't where we should have been when this thing hit. And that's everybody who came before. And then we screwed up out of the box with the testing. And then we had some 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 really bad uh, potentially damaging messaging. Um, about how serious this was and how long it was going to last. A lot of that stuff has been corrected. Where I think, the, the, but 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 we're still weeks behind where we could have been. Right. And that means but Ad- a lot of people died Ken, or will die who didn't have to. Right. Admiral Ken, though, I mean, to to Alan's point, is we're we're seeing a situation right now where. Um, there's no true coordinated messaging out to the people. You know, you see, uh, and the topic of the presidential daily briefings, uh, you look at the messaging coming from the president and the conflict with the messaging coming out of, in some instances, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Blix, Dr. Uh, Fauci, the head of infectious disease at NIH, and Dr. Uh, Blix, who uh, is Burks. the uh, Burks, rather, I'm sorry, Dr. Burks, who is the uh, former head of PEPFAR uh, and and largely uh, a known, recognized figure inside the federal government when it comes to, she was very much in, involved with the AIDS response uh, that was uh, in PEPFAR from the Bush, uh, administration. But going back to that is when we see the conflict in messaging, does, is, I, I guess the question, where does, what, what should the message be? Because on one hand, you could look at what Fauci is saying as kind of alarmist and we're all going to die. And again, I'm, I'm, that's what he's saying. I'm just saying some accuse him of being alarmist over conservative. And then you see the message out of the president, which is, uh, you know what? We're going to be fine in a couple of weeks. Warm weather's coming. It'll disappear, et cetera. Where's the breakdown and, and how dangerous is that breakdown? So I, I think part of the, part of the, the issue is that there is a rush to get to the microphone every day. At least there appears to be one. Um, I was listening to Doris Kearns Goodwin this morning, uh, who is a uh, well-published presidential historian, and she pointed out something that was really interesting, and that was the fact that uh, even that during World War II, when FDR did his fireside chats, he always gave it to the American people straight. You know, in the beginning, right after uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed and we weren't doing very well either in Europe or in the Pacific, he was giving it to the American people straight, but he wasn't doing it every night. Uh, his administration, the president, took a, a real heavy hand in making sure that they crafted a message that was as truthful as it was optimistic. And I think that you know the, the thing that I think you, you can overcommunicate. You know, I, I've heard the president say that uh, you know he's a cheerleader for the com- country and he doesn't want to you know uh, inspire panic. I think, and that's good, and I think that's probably one of the best things I've heard the president say in, in, the, in the last couple of weeks or so. 
Um, but I think it's, it's also safe to say that one can over-communicate and one can uh, over-communicate an incoherent message, and that has the same effect as the, as the thing that, that I think he's trying to avoid. So I think the breakdown is one, uh, one of frequency, uh, one of a lack of deliberateness, uh, and then most importantly, a lack of cohesion between what is desired politically and what is needed from a safety and health perspective. So, Dan Lipner, you know, the messaging coming out of the president, uh, has, I've heard uh, criticism of the president saying that his promotion of the hydroxy uh, solution with the ZPAC has been not only uh, irresponsible, but some say dangerous. Is that overstating it? Is it, or are they? Is there some legitimacy to that criticism? Actually, that's the best example there is as far as the president not letting the experts do what the experts do. So the fact of the matter is most people will recover from COVID-19. That is accurate. Correct. However, a lot of people are also not going to recover from COVID-19 compared to other things like the flu, which it was suggested early on, this was just like the flu. It is not. A much higher fatality rate than the flu. So take to that to the uh, the. Uh, hydrochloroquine, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it. Hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. There you go. I'll let you <laughs> say the name of it. The, the data is unclear, and I've been spending an enormous amount of time following statements on this for normal people, at least who have chosen to post online, who will explicitly state that based on anecdotal evidence, well, you know, this stuff works. Somebody took this and somebody got better. That's not real data. Real no. data, you have to actually do affirmative studies and, and try to figure this stuff out. And worse yet, there actually is a cost to this stuff, and not cost in money, a cost in lives and cost in actual complications if people use this stuff or misuse this stuff. So the president speaking about this stuff in a very unscientific way is information that is getting out to some people, and those people are misusing and, to generously say it, misunderstanding what the president is saying, assuming he's not outright saying it wrong. That is an actual evidence of danger. So to your point, Dan, I, I, I'm going to say this. Um, and I haven't been public on social media about this, but I, I can say it now. My, my, I've got four members of my family that, ha that have active symptoms of uh, coronavirus up in New York, Connecticut, and in Vermont. Uh, I can tell you, my brother, who got hit hard with it, uh, was, is one of the confirmed cases, and his doctor... There's so many things that I can tie back to this uh, uh, to this story, but his doctor had prescribed him the Z-Pack and uh, hydroxychloroquine mixture, and his significant other, his his, uh, his girlfriend who lives with him, who also came down with coronavirus, her doctor did not. 
And my niece, who has coronavirus, her doctor did not. They were literally a day in between each other as far as showing the symptoms. And the funny thing about it is, my brother who had the, uh, the prescription for hydroxychloroquine showed no better results, if any at all, than the two people that were in the house that did not. And the reason why I bring this up is because my concern on this is the promotion out of the federal government of one possible, of one possible solution on a drug that was never tested for it, uh, on, a, on, a, on a virus that it was never designed for, and no control and no control over any sort of the results because there's so many other problems with the numbers, which we'll talk about here in a second. But I, I, the, the problem I have with this, and I want everybody to understand, is every time the president, and he may say, I'm not a doctor, I'm just promoting hope, that's false hope. And Alan, am I overspeaking it by saying that that is a dangerous message to go to a public that's already scared and nervous about what the future holds? No, you're 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 dead on you and uh, all you guys. Um, it 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 is perfectly legitimate, and 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 Tony Fauci has said this. We are running some trials on a number of existing treatments that might conceivably be helpful, um, chloroquine being one of them, or the, the other form, the hydroxychloroquine. Um, and we do this carefully, quickly. We've, sped, we've gone way faster than we normally do. We want to see some results that's, that, that's more than anecdote. Meanwhile, <laughs> one of the president's trade advisors, Peter Navarro, former <laughs> liberal Democrat of California of uh, uh, election failure fame um, claims that there are studies. Well, there, when, you, when you look at some results of 30 people in France that were not set up scientifically, but were basically 30 anecdotes, and this is this argument, is it science or is it anecdote? Um, and Fauci says, that's not science. And Navarro says, yeah, it's a study, and we, we have this bizarre argument between the noted scientist over here and the economist over there, um, and the public, and then you've got the president weighing in on the economist side, basically, again and again and again saying, this stuff, it can't hurt. Give it a shot. There's evidence, and he says it again and again, and, and if you believe him in general— um, and are listening, you're going to think, you know, I'll take the president. He's he's not going to lead me astray. Well, wrong. And as Dan pointed out, there 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 is significant evidence, and a number of doctors have said this, including the head of the American Medical Association, and I think the American Lung Association have said there is some evidence out there, folks, that that the chloroquines, the twins can do heart pro can create heart problems and heart failure and potential death. Right. It's not a free lunch. So yeah. test it. Right. But do it let in me a follow careful up. study, but don't overhype it. 
because yeah. people are going to be demanding it. You're going to mess up the market for people who need it, people with lupus, uh, most, right. mo- most, uh, the, most significantly. This, yeah. this medicine does have a useful purpose for sick people. Um, right. Dan Lipner, go ahead. It's just a, it, so, it really so let me follow up on this. Uh, yeah, Dan Lipner. Yeah, so everything, everything Alan is right, but there's one additional problem to this, and this is the issue of – and again, it's the, the, the issue of style of leadership and what the intangibles are. So we live in a country that is more than predisposed on the left and the right for conspiracy theories, and – Thanks to the president's promotion of this drug, whose name I will not repeat again because I'm going to bastardize it again, um, there are now conspiracy theories. I don't know if they're true or not that both he and Jared Kushner have stock in the companies that produce this stuff. That is not the kind of issues we need to be playing with right now. We need to be able to look to the leadership of of our government at all levels, the federal let, government and me, state government. Dan, let me just jump in. Let me, let, best interest. That's let me just jump in. Let me just jump in real quick on that on that on that conspiracy theory. Number one, any important to bring forward. No, no, but but what I'm saying is anybody with a 401k more than likely has in their portfolio, stock in the company that makes uh, caloroquid and hydroxychloroquid. That's a company called Novartis. It is a European-based company. It is widely held in many stock portfolios and pension funds. So the idea that, you know, you know, this, that they have stock in it and that they have a large stake in it, it needs to be investigated. But I don't want that to be promulgated because if that was the case, Everybody in federal government probably has Novartis, including Tony Fauci and Dr. Blix, in their 401ks or their retirement plans. So I just want to be careful about how we no, go no, after and I, and, and, and I absolutely agree, but that's what makes the being diligent in how you choose to state these – what is a drug that is useful and what is not that much more important. Because there are so many people that are so ready to jump down those rabbit holes, those people who want to go down those rabbit holes are already predisposed to it, or even people who are teetering on the edge. As soon as you give them more opportunity, that means when something, when more statements come on about if there is a miracle cure or a magic bullet that is out there, I would really prefer people believe the federal government when that occurs, as opposed to scratching their head and going, hey, I wonder whether or not there's a financial opportunity in this for the president and wonder whether or not this is actually what's going to get us better. That's what makes it so important. That's what makes public trust such a valuable thing to not squander. So, Admiral Ken, you know, leading into the idea of uh, the messaging, we've also heard the president be accused and his briefings being accused of being infomercials for his quote-unquote buddies. Uh, you look at uh, the way he instituted the, um, the Defense Production Act, uh, the, the way that he's brought up these heads of companies like MyPillow to Walmart to CVS and Walgreens, 
all major players in possibly producing uh, solutions for the American response to COVID. But there's now talk in a, in a report that was in a series of reports that were put out by one, our friend John Allen at uh, NBC News, and another one out of the Wall Street Journal that are saying that the federal government is playing favoritism with who's getting the contracts to supply the uh, the government with these with these products, not just tactically right now, but long term. Uh, is is that going to be an additional problem down the road for this administration and for the federal response as we go longer? To it? Our um, our friend uh, Joe Scarborough over on MSNBC has this little statement that this little thing that he he, he likes to use, and, and uh, I I think it's it's more uh, more accurate these days than than, than ever before. Let's not confuse the signal for the, from the, uh, with, with the noise. The signal is right now that we are not getting the leadership that we need from the federal government to get this country through this pandemic with the least number of lives lost as possible. The noise is things like the stuff we're talking about right now. I don't think that this administration is, uh, is gun shy about getting into yet another crisis. Matter of fact, as being the art, uh, the artful dodger and, and master of the distraction that he is, I think the president would love to have uh, credible uh, news outlets and good talk shows like this one spend their time talking about the next uh, BS controversy that the president might might be doing or might not be doing, rather than think than talk about the fact of the matter is that this country is in trouble right now and we're not seeing the leadership that we need from the federal government for a myriad of reasons. Alan Moore, you agree? Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with that. And, I, and I'm reminded, you, we talked before about these daily press briefings, which, uh, which the president clearly early on concluded, wow, I can't do my big rallies, but I can go on television every day for an hour or an hour and a half, and I can control the mic, and I can, I can get some information out, and then I can riff on that, and then I can answer some questions. And the country's watching and hanging on my every word. And for the first week or so of this, um, people began, there was a little bump, a positive bump for the president in the polls because he was present, engaged. They tended to forget all the things that he had said in the past. And if somebody brought them up like a a reporter, he would trash the reporter uh, for for being negative, for being unprofessional and so on. and, and for a little while there, it seemed to be working. The president got a little bump up four or five points in approval and in, in his ability to handle uh, this crisis. But in the last 10 days or so, it's gone the other way. And he's gone back to kind of his 40 to 45 percent, 40 to 44 percent uh, base uh, of following. It's a, it's a very solid, scarily solid floor, but... Uh, it, 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 it's tiring on people, A, because it just goes on and on and on, and B, because the press in, legitimately talks about the conflict between what he says and what his medical right. experts are sometimes forced to say. Um, right. When Fauci has to talk about the chloroquine question or Burks talks about what the states 
are we're not uh, are not doing. And right. and uh, it will be it'll be interesting to see uh, what what happens down the road if we see less of if right. if the president a shortens them and if and if we see less of less of them and less of him. Uh, right. He'll he's making these kinds of purely political calculations every single day. Right. And I'm hey, I, w- I want to talk yeah, about seeing less of him. Right. On, so, on, the, on that political note, it, it, it is worth noting, uh, at least the Washington Post did a piece that suggested for this kind of national crisis, the American people are predisposed to want to rally behind the president of the United States. And the two most recent cases we had uh, are actually both of the Bushes, George Herbert Walker Bush and George W. Bush, both of whom had approval ratings that jumped well into the 80s or 90% when there's a national crisis, an international crisis in both those cases. And and part of that is both everyone listening to the president and the president saying things that were important to them. This president still flirting with a number in the mid-40s, maybe that's generous, is a suggestion that maybe he's not actually rallying the country the way we are predisposed to want to rally behind the president of the United States. That's a giant conspiracy. It is, in fact, the messenger and his, its ability to deliver a clear and coherent message that the nation needs with facts and substance. Right. Well, to that point, though, I also want to talk about the economic impact on it. Uh, right now, we saw, as of this recording, we saw another release of unemployment numbers that showed another 6 million unemployment applications going through just in a week. Uh, And talking to some inside the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Department of Labor, I've been told that we could see numbers as high as 20 or 25% unemployment that is going to, although short term, very, very dramatically impacting our economic future, how this country does business. Uh, with the, I mean, this country has never seen a global economic, this country's never seen an economic shutdown, a complete shutdown of the economy the way this did. Uh, we've never seen the stop of cash flow the way that this has happened. Uh, and by the way, we should also say to the folks, not only our first responders, but all the hospital workers, all the medical professionals, all the people in our logistics and transportation systems, all the people in retail that are still working on a day-to-day basis cannot say what the level of heroism they're bringing up every day. But that being the case, uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to start, or actually, uh, Dan Littner, let me start with you and then go to Alan Moore and then Admiral Ken. What we did in the first round <clears throat> excuse me, of economic change or economic uh, innovation, incentives, whatever you want to call it, infusion, we did see uh, the CARES Act. The Basically, we saw the first round, which is a $2 trillion financial stimulus back into the economy, which many are saying was a bipartisan effort between the team at Treasury, Steve Mnuchin leading the effort, and then Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, and then uh, working with Pelosi 
they got the deal done. They got it through. There were some speed bumps. But the question is, was that the right deal for the economy? This deal includes not only payouts to Americans, but it also includes corporate bailouts as well. Uh, Alan Morley, start with you, then Dan, then Ken. You know, it's too soon to say. It, it's I don't have any. I don't have a huge quarrel with what they did in a very short period of time. Um, uh, the, the the big hang up early on. I mean, it was it, what was so amazing is that they got to the two trillion remarkably fast and with with remarkably little pushback. And the and the big question was how much oversight was there going to be put into place on how the the corporate piece, which is uh, something over three hundred billion dollars, would 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 be uh, distributed. Um, that's that we we don't have time to to get into that issue today. It lingers out there um, uh, in important ways, um, but it also hangs in the air if there's more money. And there was an effort yesterday by by McConnell, without a lot of groundwork being laid, let it be said, to add another two hundred and fifty billion dollars to the small business loan. Uh, piece and the, the the Democrats balked and they had a legitimate point, um, but but one of the points that's going to hang up any future money is this oversight question. Um, but I don't, you know, these are massive chunks of money for unemployment, for for uh, trying to extend um, uh, uh, sick pay. To people that, that haven't had it before, and 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 it it really gets unwieldy. And of course, a legislation's passed, and then people are saying, "Okay, where's my check? Where's my unemployment? How, there's a long line at unemployment. I can't get on the computer to, to file for my uh, unemployment. I can't go get money from a bank and and uh, for, for my to keep my small business afloat. There's a host of problems with the way that program was." designed not to mention implementation so but i'm not in a position to say oh they should have done this or they should have done that the they're not done um a lot of this is wait and see and a lot of this is out of our control because it's going to depend on what we learn about uh the virus and how it proceeds and how the country responds one of the great fears is if people get over this hump and are and are we're thinking, hey, we can kind of start putting stuff back to work, and we go back to work, and then we have a whole another wave uh, of infection, and have to go back to where we are today, right. having lost the momentum of of uh, kind of adjusting to it, hopefully, and and seeing some some deeper levels of lasting improvement. Um, right. And we, we don't know what the disease is going to do, and we don't know what we're going to learn in treatment and, and vaccine trials and right. in human behavior. We Believe it or not, we've got a caller on the line. Uh, caller, you're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Hello, caller. Nothing there. Thank you for uh, – Dan Lipner – Going back to the discussion of the $2 trillion, I've heard someone Wall Street say that, you know, they're putting money in, like, let's say the airline bailout. Uh, They're putting money into 
companies that have grossly bad debt ratios and bad books, and they're just preventing the inevitable that we should just let them just drop out of the economy and let them fix their own problems. And that money would be better suited to other like additional money to the American people, let's say. But at the same time, you've got to look at the economic impact that these airlines have, you know, whether it's Delta in Atlanta, New York, uh, and, and, and the West coast and how they employ a lot of people. Uh, we've heard the same thing about the cruise line industry, where people are saying, "Why do we buy cruise line industry? They're foreign flat. They're foreign companies." When in fact they're not foreign companies, they're American-based companies. A lot of them based in Miami, Florida, that not only employ a lot of Americans, but they also employ a lot of people globally. And then the economic impact that they have regionally out of those ports are just amazing. Is 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 this a catch-22 situation, or should we look at how we bail out these companies in this particular incident? Well, I believe the cruise line industries were actually carved out of the bailout, and uh, to be candid, I am absolutely fine with that. They are a huge capital investment of a luxury industry that really, as far as I'm concerned, are more than capable up in both insuring and preparing for their own. They are not a interest, and the fact that they flag a disproportionately large number of their boats internationally because they don't want to deal with those pesky little uh, federal regulations, I'm okay with that. Um, as far as other organizations um, and other companies out there, uh, this is going to be an odd bit for me. So I actually kind of like how the this bailout has been structured, at least standing of it is, that some of that money will be construed as grants if the money is a direct pass-through from companies to their employees to keep them solvent during this crisis. And after this crisis passes, yeah, there actually does need to be a real look as far as their debt-to-capital ratios and whether or not they could have actually prepared in any meaningful way. But at this moment, because of the just staggering numbers of unemployment we are looking at, the depression numbers, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that, that keeping those numbers down and keeping those people affiliated with their businesses as long as possible so there isn't a time for whatever can be seen for for reinstituting or re bringing in the human capital again so companies can start producing and running their organizations in a way that hopefully the economy can can recover as quickly as possible um, as far as companies that actually are employ a large number of Americans and actually are wired at this moment I'm okay with that that's does need to be a reckoning after this thing is over. Right. Because exactly has been said, um, right. there is an issue with the large debt ratio. There is an issue with the, the no rainy day funds. I mean, I, I've seen some rather humorous right. memes out there going suggesting that they just need to have one less iPhone or, you know, not have cable television, the kind of rhetoric that's thrown at poor people in the United States 
These are places right. that, in theory, could prepare for a rainy day. Right. Now is not the time for that conversation. Once this is over, that is absolutely the time for this. Right. Let's go to the, another caller. Caller from the 612 area code. You're on with Backroom Politics. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for taking my call, guys. How are you guys doing today? What's going on? What's your question, sir? Yeah, I was hoping to talk about the uh, upcoming election. And uh, it's kind of interesting how prior to the coronavirus hitting, it's pretty obvious Trump was going to win in, in, in November. And uh, it seems like now, for, from a Democrat standpoint, it seems like a lot of Democrats are almost happy that this happened to a certain degree. And the reason I say that is when the original reports were coming out about the coronavirus back in January and like February, there were a lot of Democrats in the media that were almost gleeful at the idea of the coronavirus potentially drop, like causing a depression or bringing the economy down because they understood politically that as long as the economy was strong, there was no way Biden or Sanders was going to be Trump. It was, it was obviously sure. everybody. Sir, let me let me just jump in real quick. Uh, number one, can you show me any Democrats that that showed any sort of messaging of joy or happiness and hopefulness of the crash of the economy? Yeah, you can go to YouTube and there's tons of compilations all over there. Can, can you give me can you give me an example and their reaction? Can you give me? Can you go, there's a YouTube channel called There's a YouTube channel called Drone Tech Politics. D R O N E T E K politics. Yeah. And on yeah. there, he literally has massive compilations showing journalists on MSNBC, on CNN, tweets from journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so forth, and goes on and on. And it shows them both their reactions, what they wanted, even now, today, as we speak, yeah. how they're blank, okay. literally doing propaganda on the, on the behalf of the Chinese government, essentially, okay. like, down, like, Playing it off, you know. Yeah, listen. listen as the yeah, I got, I got show, rid of him. I, I got rid of him. I got, I got, I got rid of him. I got rid of him. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna well, play that game. Could, I mean, there is an interesting question of what the impact of all of this might be on the election, and that's where the guy started. Yeah, um, but, that's, but when, when we started getting into <laughs> no, no, it, that, that actually is an important um, yeah, on which different hey guys, including hey guys, the absentee hey ballot let me, issues. Let me moderate. And, let me moderate this. Hold on. Stand by. Let me moderate this. Let me moderate. You were challenging him, Justin. No, no, no. But wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. I did want to ask him the question. The thing about it is, what I will not allow, and and this is where I this is where I do take this a little bit personally. The thought that there are elected officials or members of the media that are hopeful that our economy will crash. That based on the idea of people getting sick and losing their lives, I take that a little personally. Here's why. And as a lifelong Republican, oh, wait, stop. I, I, don't lecture us. Don't lecture us, Justin. Why not? Why because here's the thing is what I do want to tell everybody out there is is yes, I do take that. I'm not lecturing you. I'm making a comment. Is that I do take that a little personally because of the fact that I don't know of anybody and I've seen no evidence of anybody saying that they want the economy to. So, Justin. Justin. Yes, Admiral Ken. Justin. So, in in an attempt to separate the signal from the noise, all anyone has really, with, 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 with any kind of serious interest in what's going on with current events, all anyone has to do is go to that YouTube page and look at Drone Tech. And the, 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 just the juvenile uh, 
infantile presentation of it says everything. Let's go on to the next right. thing, dude. But 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 anyway, I, and but again, I want everybody to know that th- this is life or death, and there's a lot of people that are putting on tinfoil hats on both sides of the aisle, and I think now is not the time to put on the tinfoil hats. That's all I'm saying. Let's actually, go back to the original exactly. discussion. The, the, what, the, what, the biggest takeaway from that caller is the incredible importance and the president of the United States trying to unify us and not giving oxygen to the nonsense. I mean, it's, I'm a broken record on this, but each time the president does give oxygen to that kind of nonsense, there are more of those people like this caller that see that kind of stuff, and it actually injures us as a nation. This is inconsequential. No, no, no. I, I understand that. But, but here's the thing is, right now, and, I, and this is the last we're going to say on this topic, is right now the focus and the dialogue does need, you know, the dialogue that we're having regarding is it right to bail out all these businesses? Should the money go to the people or should it go to the small businesses? Should we be bailing out big businesses? All of that is important. But to say that there are that there is evidence of people talking about how they're excited at the idea that our economy is going to crash because it will unelect Trump is just insulting to me. So that's the last we're going to say about that. Back on topic though, Alan Moore, I do, I do want to ask you the question of going back off of Dan's last uh, take is the idea that there are, Companies that are going to receive bailouts. One example I keep hearing about is American Airlines. Uh, The books for American Airlines have never been great uh, since its merger with U.S. Air, although it does employ a lot of people. Does putting money into what may be an inevitable bankruptcy anyway a good use of this money for this fund? Here's the problem. If you if you try to dis, uh, start going digging in and saying, okay, we're going to have some certain balance sheet requirements, some profit and loss requirements, some historical requirements, some re- requirements relating to executive pay, requirements relating to stock buybacks, you get into this impossible morass. What what they're trying to do here is say, what are essential industries to the operation of our economy? today and more importantly tomorrow and we know we need a well-functioning airline industry there aren't that many airlines in operation so it's very clear that transportation industry is going to be (laughs) is going to be towards the front in terms of who gets some degree of help to keep them afloat until hopefully we can reopen the economy there will be ample time for sorting out later. Um, uh, I don't think anybody's blaming the, 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 the airline industry for, for the fact that, it, that the, the, the coronavirus victims, first, first ones, came probably on an airplane, right? It's not the same as in the, in the 2008 giant recession where there was plenty of blame to go around, but with with dirt all over their hands were the major banks and the and the and the mortgage industry, and there was an enormous amount of anger and distress at the fact that right. a, there there was there was a significant bailout and nobody went to jail, um, 
and and it, and that lingers, but that can't color what, our thinking about what, what the objective on, of this bill is. Yeah, pop up Alan, individuals, pop up critically important elements to how the economy functions. But Alan, is, is it is it right or wrong to use the bailout of 2008, where we legitimately had too big to fail and a direct tie into the global economic possible failure versus airlines, let's say. Do they have as much of an impact as AIG, uh, Lehman Brothers failing, uh, and Merrill Lynch and the whole uh, and, the, and the whole swapping of debt that we saw under Hank Paulson? Well, I mean, we bailed out GM back then, right? We, 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 we kept it alive. And at the time, there was an interesting question. Should, should GM be broken up or be, be bailed out? And the choice was made. Choice was made quickly. And then it was, uh, it, you know, it, it worked out. This is not the time to say to, to pick and choose among different airlines. The idea is we need an airline industry, and right now nobody is flying, and their expenses uh, haven't changed. <laughs> you know, they still have all these planes and all these people. So are we, do we care or not? My answer is yes, we care. We'll sort out who the winners and losers are later, but let's, let's provide – short-term economic prop up to to the airline industry so it will so it doesn't have to completely fall apart and consolidate now um and that's a decision that was made and it passed 96 to nothing in the senate so right clear i'm 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 all for it down the road hold on dan lipner you know but the, the one example i also hear is in the 2008 bailouts, one of the companies that we bailed out was General Electric. And it appears that there's another General Electric bailout coming. At what point do we stop bailing out companies that constantly need bailouts? Well, this is the thing, and why I am actually assuming it goes as the plan was laid out, why I'm actually okay with this current bailout. The difference between a government grant and a short-term government loan, the the money is literally a direct pass-through from the government through the company to their employees. Even if their employees are at home because things are shut down, as I understand the bailout, and please feel free to correct me, if the money keeps the employees on the payroll, therefore keeping their insurance benefits, they, they, them being able to make their mortgage payments, being able to pay their credit, being able to buy groceries, all of that litany of things that people do when they have a job. If that is how the bailout is used, I'm okay with that. If alternatively, and this is the other side of that coin and where people are looking back at the bailout from the, 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 the great housing crisis, where some of that money did keep organizations afloat that did behave badly, and Alan correctly pointed out, nobody went to jail for that thing, which a lot of folks are still frustrated with, including me. If 
people choose to go that route. And as I understand how the law is written, there is a cost for going that route to, for maintaining your own solvency and lining your own pockets. There is a different route for which things will be handled. American Airlines, ironically, is actually one of those organizations that did something that was just amazing at the time. The the company and all of its unions actually came together, and the union took a major pay cut and a cut to benefits for its union membership. Immediately afterwards, the executive the executive wing in American Airlines gave themselves bonuses. After the PR got out, um, they meant to undo that. But the idea that 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 was ever any part of the conversation, uh, it Room. Seemingly, yeah. the way this legislation was drafted, it will not allow for that kind of thing. Right. However, so, this will need to pay uh, real quickly to the news. Real quickly, the president's war on G's that are that are going on out there. This is also a thing that that then begins to feed more conspiracy theories that who's right. minding the store. It's an issue. Right. Uh, one of the sideline items that I want to quick, and, and it's becoming more and more evident that there could be a a down the road crisis in how our military is involved with all of this, and the way that this administration deals with the military. the The one side story that has popped up is. Uh, the issue revol- revolving around um, the uh, commanding officer of the USS Teddy Roosevelt, Brett Crozier, and the area of the Navy, uh, Mulder. The, uh, the situation where it appears that there was, a, in the eyes of the commanding officer of the Teddy Roosevelt, a readiness issue. As more and more cases of coronavirus were popping up on the Teddy Roosevelt during active deployment, uh, and deal with coronavirus situation, upon tying up to land, he was uh, immediately relieved of command. It also was a message to the to the crew of the Teddy Roosevelt by the acting Secretary of the Navy, where he called him either naive or stupid for sending out letters to his command cadre about his concerns of readiness with a crew that is suffering from coronavirus, uh, which also that once that got out, that also led to his uh, resignation out and the audio was played on the major news networks. Uh, President Trump was asked about the situation during one of the pressers this week, and he said he was going to directly get involved in it. Uh, Admiral Ken, so many things about this situation, but uh, the the first question I want to ask you is, number one, uh, regarding Captain Crozier, is this a situation where, you know, he is right to notify his command cadre of possible readiness issues, and if they're not being addressed, escalating it? Did he do the wrong thing? So this whole issue can be, I, I think, described as the, the what versus the how. To answer your question directly, 
Of course, the commanding officer of a ship should always be concerned with the ability of his platform and his people to conduct their mission. No doubt about it. And I have no doubt in my mind that Captain Crozier did that. Where this starts to fall apart, or in the words of naval aviators, where this starts to lose airspeed and altitude, is in how he did it. So Teddy Roosevelt is a national security strategic asset. It is the centerpiece of power projection for the United States in that part of the world. Anytime, anytime the capabilities or in this situation, the limitation of those capabilities starts getting discussed in the public space, that's bad. And the minute that he, he went out of the classified space to talk about what the ship could do versus couldn't do um, in any way, shape, or form, uh, he, he, he pretty much signed his own retirement request, request papers. Um, I, I have no doubt, um, I, have my, I have no doubt that uh, his heart's in the right place. Uh, a great deal of scrutiny goes into the selection of uh, officers to command uh, those types of warships. Uh, no one falls into those, those types of commands by mistake. Um, and so, uh, and it is sad to see, you know, th this happen to this officer because he, he's had a great record. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, he screwed up. Not to be outdone, not to be outdone, Secretary, Acting Secretary Modeling got on an airplane, flew halfway around the world to berate the crew. And if Secretary Modley had any belief that his comments to the crew, his expletive lace, uh, 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 I guess derogatory comments toward the commanding officer of that ship, if he had any 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 belief that those those comments weren't going to get out into the public, let me quote him: He was either stupid or naive, um, and he had to go. And quite frankly, uh, uh, there was a there was a, a a legion of voices that were starting to go up asking for his resignation, and, and unfortunately, he, he chose to do it before I could join that course. So, I guess, Admiral Ken, the question is, number one, uh, in that situation, how, how big of a readiness issue, not, not just in the Teddy Roosevelt situation, but right now, we have uh, permanent change of stations that are are, are on hold promotions are on hold uh training capabilities are on hold uh does this have a long-term effect on the on the actual readiness of our military the longer this goes on so let me let me answer it this way because this is this is one of those conversations that one could could easily fall into a classified space and then i have the fbi NCIS knocking on my door, and we just don't want that down here in South Florida. Um, so, so the U.S. military is a microcosm of America. So your sons, your daughters, your cousins, your nieces and your nephews, your uncles and aunts, if you know if they're as old as I am, are are are, are the are the people that make up the military. If anyone thinks that we are going to be somehow miraculously not impacted by COVID-19, then they are not paying attention to what's going on. And so much like the, the, the medical services are having issues trying to figure out who's healthy enough to deliver services and who is not, 
the U.S. military is going to have challenges trying to figure out who's healthy enough to do the job and who is not. And that's probably as much as I can say about that. Okay, fair enough. So we've got about 15 minutes left. I want to give you each two minutes to kind of close out this episode. And I want to ask this question. Uh, What does life look like in six months? And two minutes only. After two minutes, I'm muting everybody. Uh, (laughs) Let's start off with you, Alan Moore. Okay, first of all, let me thank Ken. I I thought his presentation on the, the Roosevelt was perfect. And it just... Was was right on point, um, so thank you for that, Ken. Um, uh, six months from now, well, it starts out with you know we're going to have an election, and I need to make a special point of congratulating Bernie Sanders for his tremendous victory. He won the war. He won the war. Now he lost the battle, but he won the war, and I I really really am happy for him uh, that 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 occurred. Um, Six months from now, we'll be right in the heart of the campaign. And whether this, uh, whether this coronavirus, COVID-19 uh, enterprise episode adventure works for or against the president remains to be seen. Um, it, 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 could, it could bring him back into the White House and it could cause a historic loss. Um, there's of the vagaries of the disease and of what's going on around the rest of the world, what other world events may occur, what natural uh, disasters may occur. Um, it has turned everything uh, upside down. Uh, the, the Democrats, most particularly now, the, the, the likely designee, um, the likely nominee, Joe Biden, he can't get any traction, any air. Um, but if the president is out there t- taking sure. too much air and harming himself, which he's at risk of doing, but he right. usually catches on to that. Um, 30 seconds. And it could be the best thing ever for Biden. Okay. Uh, wow. Came in under the clock. Nice. Uh, Dan Lipner, two minutes. Unfortunately, I suspect we're going to be in the heart of the battle of whether or not mail-in voting is – going to be a answer to at least the problems of campaigning and voting for the election. We already saw a horror show uh, that was in Wisconsin. Unfortunately, we're not going to see the actual vote totals for a week um, from, from yesterday or from two days ago, I should say, uh, to see what's going on. But that's going to be the heart of the battle. God willing, we won't be seeing a second or third wave of coronavirus uh, com- coming out. But based on what we're seeing thus far, um, I am unfortunately not hopeful. I think there will be a second or third wave uh, coming up with these spikes because people are going to be uh, lifting uh, various different advisories too quickly. So we are going to be seeing we are, we, we are simply in round one right now. Good job. Uh, Admiral Ken. So I think from a, a, a culture, cultural perspective, Corona has, has, has changed the world that we're going to live in forever. Um, my 21-year-old stepson is sheltering in place with us here in Florida. Oh, by the way, if you haven't played Cards Against Humanities with a couple of 20-year-olds, you're, you're missing out on a really good time. 
Um, but on the back end of this, I, I think parents are going to be wondering, why am I spending seventy-five dollars and $80,000 a year uh, to send people off to college when we can do this remotely? Uh, businesses are going to try going to start looking at, you know, why are we spending so much money on buildings when we can have people work from home? Um, you know, why, 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 why am I worrying about going to the gym if I've ordered all this equipment that I can now um, um, work out here at my house? So I think you're going to see a massive change in how we live our lives every day. Um, I, I think that m most people uh, are starting to see the value and in the, in the, in the beauty of just sitting at home and, 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 and reading a book. And there's something to be said about that. Now, the social distancing piece, I think, is, is a little challenging because, you know, most people like the folks on this call are very social. We like the company of other people. But I think this is basically going to force us to start bringing more balance to that. Right. Very good. Well, uh, I appreciate everybody jumping on this kind of impromptu kind of get us back into a little bit of normalcy here on Backroom Politics. So one thing I do want to take uh, a couple of minutes and, and give a special shout out to uh, Charlie and Oscar and uh, Rob and Maddie, the engineer up at Podcast Village. Uh, Podcast Village has uh, stopped a lot of its operations in studio as a safety issue. Uh, we want to tell them that we really appreciate them working with us and, and, and uh, we hope for a fast recovery so we can get back into studio and bring you the big time audio quality that we do. Uh, I want to also say thank you to our interns, uh, Emma, Maddie, and, uh, and James. I want to say that they have been fantastic this quarter and it's been a little bit difficult trying to coordinate the, the interns that have been working on uh, blog talk radio, but they've been incredibly flexible, incredibly understanding. And you guys are probably going to get A's out of this. Uh, lastly, I, I just want to touch on something really quickly from a personal note. I mentioned earlier that my, uh, my, my family is directly impacted by coronavirus. The one thing I do want to say is take this seriously. Uh, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of noise going on that says that don't, you know, it, this is overhyped, we're overreacting. Uh, there's a lot of people that are saying that this is just uh, political BS, etc. cetera. Uh, the one thing I can tell you is when, when you hear the stories from your family that are directly involved and directly affected by this, it's a scary, scary virus. Make no mistake about it is. We are still chasing the ball. Uh, we have some of the smartest people in the world that are literally dealing with this 24 hours a day, seven days a week to try and get in front of this. And it's a challenge. And the reality is what we can do is what we're doing right now. And that is stay home as much as possible and social practice, social distancing and listen to your, your state, your local, and even your federal officials that are giving you good advice in many instances take that advice to heart. With that in mind, I want to thank uh, Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, Dan Lipner. I uh, want to thank them for jumping on real quick. We're going to try and do another episode next week. Uh, it's just a matter of coordination, things going on, changes in lifestyle, changes in the way we're doing our daily business. So with that, uh, until we see you again, 
I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Check out our website, backroompolitics.org. You can check out our Twitter feed. We're constantly tweeting uh, news stories that are popping up at, uh, at Backroom Politics. You can also check out our Facebook feed, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. And you can also uh, email your concerns and questions to me, Justin, at backroompolitics.org. Other than that, folks, thanks for listening live. We'll post this up on the uh, on the website and on our other social media feeds. But uh, thanks for standing by with us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your continued emails, tweets, and letters of support. We do appreciate it. But other than that, America, please stay happy. But most of all, be safe. Thanks a lot, America. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.